0: Welcome to worship with Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. At Dawson, we seek to be found faithful as God's people as we become and help others become faithful servants of Jesus Christ. Now join us as we worship God through the teaching of his word in today's message. Church, as we continue to worship this morning, I'm gonna encourage you to take your copy of God's word and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11 this morning. For those of you that are new to Dawson, we are journeying through the rise and the fall of one King David through 1 and 2 Samuel. We come now to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We live in a day and age that's become rather desensitized to scandal. We're not surprised by the latest headlines, the latest news flash that comes upon cable news, or a Twitter feed that you see that is. Sh- touting the the latest affair that has come to light or the latest under-the-table agreement that has emerged over the course of the last few weeks or few months. Uh, Scandal is not surprising to us in our world. An attempted cover-up that ultimately becomes uncovered. And the truth of it is, there's, there's no profession that is immune to this. I mean, maybe it's a politician one week, maybe it's a coach the next week, maybe it's a Hollywood executive one week, maybe it's an actor the next week, maybe it's a small town pastor or a megachurch pastor. None of this surprises us. It's rather commonplace for us. It's a reminder to us that we do not live in the Garden of Eden And the writer of that famous hymn was right. We are prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God that we love. But I hope you know the scandal is not something that is particularly unique to the 21st century. The scandal is as old as the Bible itself. And there are no two names that have been forever joined in the midst of a scandal of biblical proportions than The two names that we will study together this morning, the two names that have been etched in history. It's a low point for both of them, no doubt. It is a low point for their families to come. It would lead the trajectory of one nation off the course that God had planned for it. The two names are David and Bathsheba. Their story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. In the spring of the year, when the time, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed back. David remained at Jerusalem. It all starts in a rather innocuous manner here. Verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's the spring of the year. The writer Samuel tells us that this is when the kings go out to battle. We know about seasons in the state of Alabama. We know we're coming to an important part of the football season that is before us even right now as we come to the very end with the college football bowls that are before us. We're at the beginning of college basketball, sort of right in the uh, the first quarter of the season, headed into the second quarter of the season. NBA is before us. Uh, You can show where my allegiances are because I can tell you that we're 70 days away from the start of spring training. We know about seasons. You know what we do in the fall and the winter and the spring and the seasonal nature of athletics. You go back to this ancient Near Eastern world with warring clans with nations that were enraged with one another spreading out their territorial might and there were seasons. You didn't go to battle 365 days a year. So the torrential rains of the winter give way and here is going to be a time in the spring where David knows this is a time for Israel to spread its wings, to spread its power, to eliminate any further threats And what we read in this passage here is that David, King David, sits this skirmish out. He stays at home while he sends everyone to do his work. Now, we can sort of rationalize this. There's a string of victories that David has led Israel to over the course of these past years. When you're reading 2 Samuel, you see how God has given David favor. He has successfully subdued his arch nemesis, the Philistines, He successfully led the Israelites to silence the Moabite threat and the Edomite threat here. And all of this success has come to David's head. And more than that, it has brought about a lethargy and a laziness to David here. We don't know exactly the age. You can't pinpoint, but scholars would say David's around 50 here. We can't pinpoint his age, but we can certainly pinpoint the way he's acting there's sort of a middle-aged malaise that has come over David at this point. We can imagine that his armor has grown a little tight around the middle of his waist here. His greatest victories are not before him, but his greatest victories are in the rear view mirror of his life here. And David is living out that, that very familiar cliche that idle hands are the devil's what? They're the devil's playground. And we see this to be true with King David. 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 2, simply begins with these two words, It happened. It happened. Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very Beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. The entire sordid affair plays out in just four short verses. David wakes from an afternoon siesta that stretches out late into the afternoon here. He goes to the rooftop of the palace. He's got a panoramic view of all of his kingdom and what a kingdom it has become. Israel is united. Israel is secure. Jerusalem is the capital. There's economic success David has never been at a place of more acclaim and more security, more power, more position, more prestige. But in this moment, what does he do with his power? He gazes upon this woman. We know her to be Bathsheba. Verse four tells us sort of parenthetically, the writer wants us to know that she was bathing out of active ritual purification. And in verse four, we have this flurry of verbs, that pile on one after another, David sees, he sins, David takes. This is not love, this is not romance, this is not David courting, this is unabated lust. This is David with unlimited and unchecked power. Sheba, Sheba's largely powerless, been certainly A moment of endangering herself to refuse the king's request. What the king wants, the king receives. And Bathsheba's silence is broken in verse 5, which is three words that would forever change David's life, would forever change Bathsheba's life, and would forever change the very trajectory of the nation of Israel. And those three words are simply, I am pregnant. Three words that usher in a cover-up. David is slick. David is not going to allow this to derail his plans and his plotting. And so he's got a plan. And the plan A is very simply to call back her husband, Uriah, the Hittite, from the front of the line. Plan is obvious. David says, hey, I'm going to take you from the furlough. I'm going to give you a furlough from the front lines of the battle here. This way you can go home and you can see your wife and Uriah refuses You see his heart here in verse 11. Look with me in your copy of God's word. Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord. They are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as you live, King David? And as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. David's plan A is derailed, by the valor and the character of a leading soldier. He, he, will, not, he will not go from uh, the front lines to furlough home with his wife here because of the character and the valor of Uriah the Hittite. And this is in contrast to David. And the writer of 2 uh, Samuel wants you to see this here. There, we have a compromised king contrasted with, with a person of, of character in Uriah. David's not going to be easily dissuaded by this man's character. So what does he do? He's got a plan B right in his back pocket. He pulls it out. Plan B is the guy's not out. David invites Uriah with all of the friends. Verse 13, they're going to drink too much here. Hopefully David thinks that Uriah and a drunken stupor will go back home to lie with his wife. And in verse 13, we read that David's mission is, is, well, it's accomplished. It's accomplished so well that it actually thwarts David's plan here, because Uriah passes out. and again again, I want you to see the irony of this. Do you see the contrast? A drunk Uriah is more faithful than a completely sober king David. Plan B: swing and miss. Plan A: swing and miss. Plan C, Verse 14 the plot thickens. D- David is not content at this point with just any kind of cover-up. He realizes that he, he's, got to, he's got to hatch a, well, rather murderous plot here. You see how low David is in this point, how callous David is. He gives to Uriah a note to give to the commander, Joab. And then the note is a suicide note that the king has given to the commander. And it reads simply this. Put this man, Uriah the Hittite, on the front lines and then retreat the other men so that when he's fighting against the Ammonites, it will be a suicide mission for him. And the plan succeeds. But here's the thing, there's collateral damage. Here's the thing, David, King David, and using his power and his position, it ultimately succeeds in such a way that there are other men who die at the hands of the Ammonites at that time. And here's the stark truth that I want you to see in this passage, and it's easy for you to miss this, but I hope by now you see that the consequences of sin are always unmanageable and they're always Unconcealable. but do you see this in our text here? David's sins, they just multiply, they, they pile up one after another. It's not just, it's not that just Bathsheba will get a knock at the door that will tell her the news that her husband dies in battle. But there are other wives that are going to hear the news as a knock on their door comes and those wives become widows. And there are other knocks that are going to come on doors of moms as they hear that their son was lost in battle. And there are going to be other sons and daughters that hear and overhear this news, the collateral damage of this. And this is how sin works. Sin works. Sin is always sinister in the sense that it spreads and never stays isolated to just you. Now, there is a liar, there is an enemy who is whispering to you, maybe even today, hey, this will only affect you. This is your right, this is your privilege, this is your opportunity, it's just about you. But our sin is like the rock that we skip across the pond and the bigger the rock is, the more the ripples go out. And the wake of the ripples are the ripples that hit our friends and they hit our coworkers and they hit our family also. Sin, it just isn't controllable. Sin isn't manageable. David's laziness ends into, uh, moves into a misuse of his power. And this misuse of his power means that he has the opportunity to take advantage of Bathsheba. That leads to a murderous plot. And it ultimately ends in this mass murder execution here. And you, you might be tempted to believe the lie that you can control this. You, you might be under the illusion here this morning, I, I, I'm smarter. I'm sophisticated in the way that I can control the fallout of my sin. I've got a management plan to control the fallout of the decisions that I will dare believe only affect me. And maybe you are right for a day. I'll give it, maybe you're right for a week. Maybe you can control and conceal for months, maybe even years But do not miss this. What is hidden in the dark eventually seeps out of the cracks of your life into the light of day. There's always fallout. There's always ripples. From this point forward, there's an unraveling that occurs in David's life. There's an unraveling that occurs in Bathsheba's life. There's an unraveling that occurs in the nation of Israel. The family is going to be torn because of these decisions. There will be a newborn son that dies. There will be children that will rebel. All of the consequences of this are are not manageable by the most powerful person in all of Israel, King David. He is sending people. He is demanding of people. But even the most powerless person in the whole kingdom is, is the most powerful person is powerless in the face of the consequences of a sin. And sin is, is, is it's a siren song. It over promises and it always under delivers for us. It promises to you that it is an old friend that will give you consequence-free destination ahead of you. But sin, my friends, has an enormous capacity to destroy. Sin is always a thief, don't be deluded by this. Sin always steals from us in the present, it steals from us peace, it steals from us joy. But more than that, it is a thief, not just for the present, but the future. And not only does it break into our soul, but it breaks into the rooms of our friends and coworkers. And it steals from them future joy and it steals from them future peace. It it has no hesitation about spilling over into the innocent bystanders of your life and my life. Now, praise God this morning. In light of the stark depiction of sin that is found in the scandal of David and Bathsheba here, that we need to be reminded that we have a Savior who has come to rescue us from our wanderings, that we have a Savior that has come into this world. And through his righteousness and his sacrificial death upon the cross, no matter how far you go off of his way and his will, you can be forgiven of all of your sins. And this is a spoiler alert. I know this is thousands of years old of a story here, but David is going to receive the forgiveness of God. And we have in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and we have in Psalm 51, this beautiful portrait of God's forgiveness that comes upon even a sinful King David. But don't fast forward too quickly from this scene. Don't, don't fast forward. Yes, we celebrate that God can forgive us of all of our sins, but that doesn't mean that God grants us this magic wand to undo the damage that is caused by you and me freely and willingly walking into the grips of sin. It is a spreading disease. By its nature, it spreads, and by its nature, it destroys. And the consequences of this are always unconcealable in the end and always unmanageable. But that's not the only truth I want you to see. I also want you to see in this passage that a big fall is most often preceded by a lot of little, small steps. Here we are. It's the first Sunday of Advent. Advent. Here we are talking about hope, and I I want you to see that this is actually a hope-filled story for Christians. I know you don't believe me now. I know you say, well, David, I think you're over-promising as a pastor here. What what is hopeful about the fallout of the scandal of biblical proportions before us here? I bet bet you're thinking, "What, what, what, a little bit of a stretch here? A little pastoral hyperbole here, but I want you to see in this passage that if you are a follower of Christ this morning, that there is hope for you and there's hope for me that this passage i think can illustrate for us how much god loves us as his followers to give us signs to keep us in his will and his way this is a passage that i think can illustrate for us one of the famous passages that paul gives to the church at corinth in 1 corinthians chapter 10 you'll see it on the screen here no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man god is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also, do you see this? He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now you say, David, what, what is hopeful about this? Well, you are not powerless to the temptation that is before you. I mean, do you see that, Christian? We, we sometimes have this narrative that David's a great guy, great guy, great guy, great guy. One day wakes up in the morning and makes this impetuous decision that forever will derail his life, Bathsheba's life, the nation of Israel. And that's just not the case. We, we've, been, we, we've been seeing the preview of coming attractions as if we've walked through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. But even in this passage right here, We need to be reminded that in the face of an enemy that seeks to distract us and entrance us and ensnare us, that you are not powerless. You, we we as followers of Christ, we have the spirit of God that dwells in us. We have the word of God that guides us. We have the people of God that are around us. And we have the promises of God that says, there's always a way to endure temptation. And David had many opportunities to not go down this road. Even in 2 Samuel chapter 11, there were were signposts. There were signs that David ignored. There were exit ramps that he could have gotten off on here before he gets to this dead-end destination that leads to pain and leads to hurt. And I want you to see this. So let's do this. Let's rewind the tape a little bit. Let's go back over 2 Samuel chapter 11 and say, what are the signs that David missed here in this passage? First sign is David could have gotten up off the couch. He could have been a king that embraces the responsibility and been where he should have been in that moment. First sign that he ignores, he speeds past it. Second sign of an exit ramp that he misses here is that as he sees Bathsheba bathing from his high perch, the the top of the palace there, he could have in that moment seen her. He could have seen her as an image bearer of God and not an object of his lust. That was not inevitable that he would choose to objectify her in that moment. Second sign that he absolutely ignores. Third sign, he could have heeded the warning given to him by his servant. There's this nameless mediator. David takes, David sees, David calls forth, but he does it. He does it by giving someone else the responsibility to do his dirty work. And that nameless servant comes back in the story and says these very words to David, the king. Is not this Bathsheba? The daughter of Ilium, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Do you, do you know what the servant is saying? He is saying, You might, King, want to slow down. I, I know what you're asking of me. So, King, in all due respect, you've seen Bathsheba grow up. You remember, you remember King, that this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Ilium. That's one of your trusted advisors, king. You remember, king, that this is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That is one of your faithful soldiers. You might want to give a second thought before rushing headlong here. It is a third sign that David just speeds past. And the fourth is even after the the adulterous act, even after it happened, he could have chosen to confess the sin. He could have chosen not to cover it up with a plan A, then cover it up with plan B, and then cover it up with plan C that escalates to this murderous plot and pain and pain and pain. But he speeds past four signs. He could have heeded the opportunity and it would have dramatically changed the trajectory of his life Bathsheba's life, and the entire nation of Israel. David just didn't fall into this. And you don't either. I don't either. There's always another way. And God loves you and he loves me. He loves us enough to give us a way of escape. Our epic failures are not momentary lapses of judgment. The big falls are always preceded by small steps of compromise. C.S. Lewis in one of his more famous works is entitled Screwtape Letters. And maybe you're familiar with the letter uh, that, that, that the senior demon named Screwtape is writing to his novice nephew named Wormwood. Sort of this ingenious plot to kind of flip our imagination of of how the enemy tries to ensnare us. And so Lewis imagines these letters that are exchanged between Screwtape and Wormwood. And in one of them, uh, Screwtape is saying, let me give you the best advice in how to ensnare humans into the grips of sin. And he says these words, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Indeed, the safest road to hell, and we could add to compromise, the safest road to Heeding the temptations that are before us, Lewis says, is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signpost. Lewis is so perceptive. This is so absolutely true to life. The downward slide into sin is preceded by hundreds of what we would seemingly say are innocent and insignificant steps that cumulatively lead to the wrong destination. And as your pastor, I don't know who needs to hear this, but I'm almost certain Someone does. I'm almost certain that there's someone at the precipice of justifying a decision that will have, it will have life-altering ramifications for you and the people that you love and the people that you don't know that are going to come behind you. And you're standing at the precipice. And it is a precipice that you have made uh, hundreds of decisions to get to this place here. And maybe you're here in the sanctuary sitting in these pews, but maybe you're at home and you're watching on, on your own couch and you're hearing this message. Or maybe months from now, You're driving in your vehicle and you're hearing me right now talk to you as I'm talking to you through the word of God in this moment here. And I bet you're thinking, as we all want to think, someone else needs to hear this. I bet you're thinking what we all want to hear. My friend needs to hear this. My family member needs to hear this. My coworker needs to hear this. But what if indeed we need to hear this? What indeed if you need to hear this? What if indeed you've been under sort of the song of the enemy that has been whispering this lie to you? And maybe this is a sign in this moment to you. Maybe there's a sign not just for your ears, but it is a sign for your heart. And if you're going to be honest, there have been weeks of your life and months of your life where you've been ignoring opportunities to turn. And I don't know all the little steps here. But I do know this and you know this. No one wakes up and says, how can I make a decision today that is going to wreck my life and the future of it? How can I make a decision this day that is going to forever alter the course of those that I love the deepest? But if we're going to be honest, they are little habits and little places of compromise that set a trajectory for our life. And we can can see them and we can name them. They're familiar steps. And you can look at your life and I can look at my life and say, have I grown cold to the word of God? Are there these elongated stretches of just absolute prayerlessness in my life? Or am I increasingly secretive? Am I increasingly isolated? Is there a laziness that's not who I am? It's not who you are, but you see it sort of creeping in to your work. You see it creeping in to your spiritual life. And even those relationships that are closest to you, you find yourself checked out and wanting to check out. You find yourself mindlessly Wandering and removed at times from the responsibility here. And other times you you find yourself going there, envisioning, thinking, plotting, planning. And I ask you, what what, I mean, what are you watching and what are you listening to? Who and what is forming you? These are vitally important questions, church. And I, as your pastor, well, frankly. I feel that God has called me to love you so much that I ask you these kinds of questions. And far greater and more eternal than my love for you is God's love for you. So I stand as a messenger in front of you saying, hey, my friend, are there some signs that you're ignoring? I like you travel during the holidays The week of Thanksgiving is always a week for years that we make three stops. They're always in the same sequence. On Tuesday, we're gonna go to Jackson, Mississippi, and then we're gonna spend Tuesday and Wednesday, and then we're gonna make our way to Starkville, Mississippi. And we're gonna do that on Thursday. And then it always comes to the final stop is gonna be in Oxford, Mississippi. And for years, we've made the trip back home from Oxford, Mississippi, back to Birmingham, Alabama. And if you've ever done that, if you ever traveled over to Ole Miss to watch Auburn or Alabama, you're traveling back down 278. And when you're traveling 278 from Oxford, headed back to Birmingham, you're going to get 30 miles out of Oxford, and you're going to get to a little sleepy town called Pontotoc, Mississippi. And right before you get to Pontotoc, there's going to be one sign that says Oxford, and right above, there's a symbol above the town name of Oxford that is simply a U-turn symbol. And it is a reminder to anyone who is coming, if you think you're gonna get to Oxford, Mississippi, driving this way, you're not going to get to your destination. You've gotta turn around, you've gotta turn around now. You're going in the wrong direction. And I wonder I wonder if anyone here this morning needs to heed a sign to turn around. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning that maybe has gone miles and miles and miles of ignoring a sign that is a sign of hope to you. It is a sign of love to you. It is a sign of God saying, I love you so much that I would send my son, even for you, as you've wandered down the wrong way, turn around, turn around, let us pray. Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our family of faith, or to learn how to become a follower of Jesus, please visit DawsonChurch.org. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.